This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. As the US grapples with a COVID-19 surge driven by the highly infectious Delta variant, booster shots are being made available for some people who are fully vaccinated. Dr Ali Mokhtar is a professor of health metrics sciences at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation and chief strategy officer for population health at the University of Washington. Mokhtar says getting the surge under control means mask wearing, getting vaccinated and now getting a booster when necessary. Well, uh, Dr. Ali Mokhtar, thanks again for joining us. Good to see you again. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you. Florida, obviously, as uh, many states in the country, is kind of gripped with another surge, right? We are in the middle of this and waiting to see where the peak of this is. Part of, I guess, the strategy from here on out, at least the nationwide strategy, seems to be looking into booster shots for people who are already immunized. So what is the value of a booster shot for people who have already been vaccinated against COVID? So we have a lot of data now showing that immunity is declining with time and antibodies are being uh, reduced. And that's why many countries have started already giving a booster. What the booster will do is will increase our immunity for those who are fully vaccinated, will increase our immunity, especially people who receive the vaccine early on, uh, like our medical staff and our elderly population. And the reason we're recommending a booster, although the vaccines are still very effective against hospitalization and mortality, but we are seeing more and more breakthrough infections. And we're noticing that in some data, it's about 40% effective in preventing infection, especially Pfizer. So a booster will definitely ensure that people who are vaccinated uh, will not be part of the circulation of the virus and will not play a role in spreading the virus. So that will be very important for us. Also, we're seeing in some hospitals right now an increase in percentage of people who are admitted who have been fully vaccinated. So some hospitals in Florida specifically had 20% of their admissions are people who are fully immunized. So we're realizing more and more the effectiveness of the vaccine, even against the hospitalization, is declining slightly. So a booster will help, of course, to protect our hospitals and save lives, especially those people who are immunocompromised, people who ha- have some chronic conditions, diabetes, heart disease, or cancer. Do you think information like this, is that problematic for people who have been hesitant to get a vaccine in the first place? If they hear about people going into hospital, even though they've been vaccinated, is that going to make them just say, well, what's the point? No, there is no vaccine that's 100% effective. So yes, we know if you are vaccinated sometimes with measles, you still get measles. It's possible, but it's uh, very unlikely. So yes, uh, it's possible that if you get the vaccine, you could be infected. And yes, it's possible that you could go to the hospital, but this is very unlikely. And the chances of happening are very rare. So yes, people will go and get the vaccine because none of us wants to be hospitalized and none of us wants to die from COVID-19. And of the people who have been vaccinated but are being admitted to hospital, like, do we know, is there enough kind of data on, on trends there? Like, How sick are those people? We know for sure that the mortality is very rare. So people who are vaccinated are less likely to die. So hence, they're less likely to have more severe symptoms, even if they are admitted. They're usually admitted when it comes to vaccinated people because they have other health conditions that are aggravating the infection of COVID-19 or vice versa. COVID-19 is aggravating that uh, pre-existing conditions. But we're seeing uh, more admissions 
for younger kids who are not vaccinated and young adults who are not vaccinated. Quite honestly, this surge that we are seeing right now has been a surge among the unvaccinated. Is the virus doing what you expected? Like, did you expect to see a strain of it that is this virulent, this infectious at this point where we are now? Yes, the virus is doing exactly what every virus before it did. Uh, Viruses do mutate. I mean, that's their way of survival. So they get uh, these mutations that some of them will disappear because they're not as infectious or as deadly. But the one that we keep an eye on are, of course, the one of concern and the one that are causing more uh, infections and more admissions. And so far, we have seen a lot of variants with this virus at the speed that we don't, we, we, I would say we're not surprised in many ways. What is really surprising for us with all these mutations is why are we allowing it to happen? I mean, we know if you give this virus a chance, it will mutate and mutate. And then we will run out of uh, Greek alphabet for naming. So it's like the hurricane season. Exactly. So it's very important for all of us uh, to take measures to prevent the circulation of the virus, you know, wearing a mask and, of course, getting the vaccine and now getting the booster. And on that issue, um, I mean, the pros and cons of mask wearing? Is that something that you've studied as well? Are you more just looking at how the virus behaves when it's allowed to to infect people? No, for masks, I we've been very vocal about uh, the need for masks at IHME. And we've been very critical of CDC when CDC recommended no masks indoor for fully vaccinated. And we knew the honor system would not work. So for masks, I, I don't uh, see any disadvantages of wearing a mask. We know very well that masks work effectively against every virus and every mutation out there. And we know, for example, they work against COVID-19 and they work against the flu. They work against other respiratory viruses because we didn't see much flu last year. So in my opinion, wearing a mask should not be a debate, should not definitely be a political issue. And wearing a mask is, in my opinion, is the best tool that we have, non-pharmaceutical tool, that everybody has access to it, especially globally. And when a CDC puts out a recommendation saying no need for a mask, what CDC is missing here is other countries in the world will follow and many people will drop the mask. And we really need everybody elsewhere to put their masks on in order to reduce circulation, in order to prevent more mutations. So I don't see any negatives when it comes to masks. I still wear my mask. I double mask. I wear an N95 depending where I am. Back to the boosters once more. I mean, what does it tell you about where we are in the United States with access to vaccines when we're already talking about that, you know, giving people booster shots sort of eight months or so after their their first inoculation? And in some parts of the world, it's still very difficult just for people to get any kind of vaccine, right? Like, how far along are we? And what does it tell you about the, I guess, the fight against COVID-19 globally? You know, I published on that. uh, And you may have seen it, the need for vaccinating everybody globally to control the spread of the virus and to ensure we don't have any mutation. But let's be realistic. And I'm... (laughs) I'm very straightforward when it comes to this. There is no easy way to saying it. The rich countries of the world need to have a good and strong economy in order to be able to support the poor countries of the world. So if the United States 
has a financial problem and shut down its economy, we're not going to be able to help with COVID, with HIV, with TB, with malaria. And we put a lot of money to help other countries, and we should put more. And I'm, you know, public health professional. But it comes to the reality of, is this vaccine protecting us? Yes. Do we need a booster? Yes. Do we need it now? Yes. Then we have to provide a booster for our people, especially those people who are paying for the vaccines and paying for the vaccines to go to Africa and the Middle East and everywhere else. It's not fair to ask somebody to pay for a vaccine for somebody else when they are at a risk themselves of getting a disease if they don't get a booster. But I, I will add to this, the United States and other rich countries, and I wrote that, the United States and other rich countries need a warp speed program to ensure that other countries can produce an mRNA vaccine. That's the way we can help countries. We need to plan for this virus to stick around for a long time. Let's build that capacity, give technical support to make sure that everybody can produce these vaccines so we have enough for everybody. On the other side of the, the booster shot equation, so people who are immunocompromised, the elderly, etc., would be first in line for that. But there's also the issue of um, kids under 12 and their ability to get vaccinated. Where do you see that going? Like, what do you think the, the prospects are for kids in that age group? When would they be seeing availability of vaccines? Because obviously there are still regulations you have to meet or, or guidelines you have to, to uh, stick to in terms of getting that approved even on an emergency basis. So where do you see that headed? So for the vaccination for 5 to 11, uh, the emergency authorization sometimes before uh, the end of the year, and we'll start rolling out the vaccines for this age group. In the United States, uh, and you've heard the president in one of his press uh, conferences, uh, said that we ensured enough vaccines for a third dose and for 5 to 11. So we have enough in the U.S. They're available. You can walk to any pharmacy right now and get the vaccine without an appointment. So we have enough vaccines in the United States. That's not true for many parts of the world. And that's, of course, a big concern. But before we start rolling out the vaccines for mandating the vaccines and asking people who are hesitant to get the vaccine, FDA should make this uh, vaccines fully authorized and stop saying it's only emergency authorized. Let's get some scientists. Let's look at the data. We have plenty of data right now to show that these vaccines are safe and we should go ahead and make sure that they are fully authorized and not on an emergency use basis. I mean, is that just a matter of red tape? Do you think it's just some kind of bureaucratic hoops to jump through? I mean, do you think that will actually go a long way to reassuring folks who are on the fence about it? It will go a long way to reassure people. I mean, I can't tell you how many times people ask me, if you're so confident about this vaccine, why isn't it fully authorized? And remember, I mean, uh, FDA authorized a drug for the dementia not long ago. The, the evidence that how effective it is is really very poor. So it's not a red tape. It's more of a traditional way of approving vaccines in the U.S. So you need to wait and give it a certain amount of time before you move it from emergency to full authorization. So they're going by the book on that, which is good. In one way, they're reassuring the public that we're not rushing an authorization for a vaccine, which is very important. But at the same time, 
we're dealing with the pandemic. I mean, the situation has changed. You cannot apply rules of regular immunization like measles or a new vaccine for a disease that you had in the books, which really worked for us and they should be maintained in the books, but not during a pandemic when you have a devastating virus that's destroying and killing a lot of people, destroying economies and killing a lot of people. So you need to change your views and get some expert right now and make sure you send the right message to the public. We looked at all the data. We have vaccinated so many people. We haven't seen any side effects. This vaccine is safe. Let's authorize it fully. In Florida, obviously schools are open now and there's a lot of debate back and forth, not only on the issue of masks and there's some politics at play there, but also just in terms of the case numbers spiking up quite dramatically um, in some of the bigger school districts. At this point and with this variant, what impact do you think schools have? What role do they have in the transmission of the Delta variant or potentially variants that may come after this one? Schools will play a big role in uh, transmission, especially we have seen it. We have seen many schools where uh, there was a spread of the virus and they had to send kids back home and ask them to be isolated. So we know from experience that schools will be a place to spreading the virus. The debate that we have in the United States shouldn't be about opening our schools or not. It should be how long can we keep our school open? How safely can we open our schools? And we failed in the United States in many parts of the country. We failed and governors failed in putting metrics to tell the public when we will open the school and when we will close the school. So if infection is 2%, should we open the school? If it reaches 5%, we should shut down the school. We don't have a metric that will tell the public when we should open a school. Right now, when you look at Florida, you can't come and say in Florida, every county in Florida, every school district in Florida has the same situation and one rule will apply everywhere. It doesn't. It doesn't work this way. I think we failed big time here by setting a metric for opening the school and a metric for closing the schools. And we don't have it. I don't hear of any metrics out there that is telling parents or children or community, this is when we'll open your school, this is when we'll shut it down. There'll be no debate. Everybody will know when it will open. Everybody know when it will close. And that's what we need to do. That's what I urge every governor to do. Can you base on your public health capacity? How many cases can you do contact tracing? Can you follow them up? Based on that, work backward and say, if cases are at that number, I'm okay. I can open my schools. If it reached that number, I'm not okay. I cannot keep my schools open. And then let's move forward and we can open a school and shut down, shut down schools based on indicators that are local indicators that will make sense to the parents and to the community. But it shouldn't be one size fit all. Mm-hmm. We spoke to you back in March, I think, and at that point, things were looking quite good. The vaccine was becoming more widely available. Cases would seem to be tapering off. Um, it, it seemed like we'd turned a corner and here we are some months later and we've turned another corner and we're heading in the wrong direction putting your futurist hat on I guess Dr. Mokdad what do you think we'll be talking about six months from now will it be yet another variant or will we be in a slightly better position do you think no I mean when we talked we predicted a surge coming up again starting in the fall and we knew uh, that a surge is coming simply because we don't have enough vaccinated people and we don't have enough immunity in our community and we knew there'll be enough people susceptible to sustain a surge. It came a little bit earlier than we expected. 
and the same will hold uh, that moving down into the winter and by December, for many parts of the country, cases will peak in a couple of weeks and start coming down. Simply because the combination of people who have been vaccinated and the combination of people who have been infected, especially with the Delta variant, there is not any more people to infect for the virus. So cases will start coming down slowly all the way to December. If we have a new variant that will make the vaccines less effective and previous infection from another variant, Delta, for example, does not provide immunity against it, all bets are off. We'll start all over again and we'll see a surge again. And it will be much worse surge simply because the vaccines are less effective and previous infections are, are less effective. We should be in a good position all the way to December, short of a new variant, because unfortunately, a state like Florida, between the combination of about 50% fully vaccinated and the large percentage of people who have been infected, Florida will be in much better position all the way till winter. Well, uh, Dr. Ali Mukhtar, Chief Strategy Officer for Population Health with the University of Washington, thanks again for joining me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Be safe. Bye. Still to come, how technology could help lift Central Florida's economy and get us out of the COVID crisis. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Paul Soul got the job of CEO of the Florida High Tech Corridor Council just a few months into the pandemic. The council, which is an economic development arm of the University of Central Florida, the University of South Florida, and the University of Florida, aims to grow the tech industry across Central Florida. Soul, who's a retired Rear Admiral and former commander of the Navy's Operational Test and Evaluation Force, joined me for a conversation about the role of technology in Florida's economy and how tech could help end the pandemic. Paul, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Matthew. Uh, It's a pleasure. You've been in this job for just over a year now. It's been a pretty tumultuous year. How's that been for you? Um, it, uh, great question. And and I'll tell you that during the pandemic, as I started a year ago in June, everything was Zoom. Um, it was a bit of a blessing because I was able to, one of the things I needed to do quickly was learn a lot and listen a lot. And so using Zoom, I was able to go across the 23 counties uh, almost on an hourly basis to, to meet folks, introduce myself, understand what they do. And so it worked, it's, it's worked out pretty well. And the goal of the High Tech Corridor Council is really to leverage the, I guess, the uh, intellectual might of those three universities, right? UCF, USF, and University of Florida and to grow the high-tech industry and innovation in Central Florida. So having spent a year kind of getting to know the ins and outs of that, what does that sort of high-tech future look like? Yeah, um, there have been probably more aha moments than I cared to uh, believe I might have had. And certainly you mentioned our three partner universities. One of the first uh, kind of big things that I've recognized are all the ed- other um, educational institutions that are out there. So you've got state colleges, you've got other universities, you've got uh, tech 
colleges. You've got a great K through 12 system. So um, that, that production of high-tech workforce, uh, which is huge for the growth of this area, uh, is in good form. Um, so that was one of the kind of one of the big things. The other thing I've noticed is the the breadth of technology. You've got everything from ag tech in the agriculture world. You've got modeling and simulation down here in Orlando. You've got financial tech out in Tampa. You've got the Space Coast. So the breadth of that technology is uh, is huge as well across the corridor. Mm-hmm. And uh, speaking of the Space Coast, there is a fairly big development project in Brevard County that just got launched. Tell me a little bit about um, about how the high tech corridor has been involved in that. Yeah, so on the on the Space Coast with uh, with the Space Coast EDC and with Space Florida, um, of course you got huge um, commercial industry out there now with commercial launches. Some of the things people don't know are things like on the manufacturing side. Uh, they're actually manufacturing satellites out there. So it goes beyond what I think I probably believed last year coming down. It goes way beyond just the launch capability. So with SpaceX and Blue Origin and what NASA's doing, um, it uh, our connection with the it's almost like our connection with everything else, the technologies that go into it, whether it's in the aerospace field specifically, or we talk about manufacturing. Um, we talk about, uh, and we are engaged in really partnerships uh, across the corridor to make that happen, uh, and that's and that's an exciting piece. Back to COVID, uh, I know there was some research being done with some funding from the high tech corridor into, uh, you know, how how to do better with with healthcare around COVID. Right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. One of the one of the big programs, and the quarter's been around for 25 years. So we uh, we turned 25. We're gonna we're gonna celebrate that throughout the year. Um, and uh, when COVID happened, um, and you think about the small and medium sized companies and manufacturers that are across the corridor in Florida, amazing chance to be able to pivot. Uh, one of our big programs is what we call matching grants research. Uh, and what we do both at UCF and at USF um, is we're able to take um, some of our resources, really partner with small and medium-sized companies as we bring them to the university to do practical research to really take technologies to solve these big problems. I don't think there was a better example than COVID. So what we did at USF and UCF is we were able to take some of those some of those dollars and immediately inject it into researchers that were working on the COVID challenge. So you have both both schools were focused on trying to solve that. We had the ability to have money to be able to apply that and partnerships kind of across the region to make that happen. And so there was that quick pivot that I think really was uh, it was. It was interesting to watch from my perspective being new down here for sure. There's also, just because of the the last year and a half and the impact of the pandemic, there's been a lot of attention paid to the service sector economy in Central Florida. And this is, I mean, this is not just 2020, 2021, right? I mean, this is always a conversation going on about Florida's economy. Like it's a little bit lopsided. There's a lot of 
jobs kind of at the lower end of the spectrum and then tech uh and and the kind of uh jobs that are associated with that is often seen as a a way to sort of build out our economy and and make it more diverse and give us better paying jobs do you think like or do you see that the high tech sector really having a significant impact on Florida's economy particularly here in central Florida yeah so great great question and and you know it there was no um we all saw what happened with uh, with covid and the tourism and entertainment and what that did to uh to this economy um i think you have to look no further than what and i'll use orange county as exa- as an example with their clustering initiative it's it's mayor deming's industry diversification program and we're spearheading that forum the reason i'm doing that is because i can see there's value across the corridor for that and when i and when i think about that and that industry diversification and what and what the tech sector can do I want people to understand, and this is, again, one of those aha moments, Matthew, that I had down here. The culture in Florida is very yes and. It is very both and. It is People approach things, whether, it, whether you're crossing streams in two technology silos or you're crossing city boundaries or regional boundaries, there is very, there's very much an inclusive kind of um, culture to start. So when we talk about helping, thinking about diversification in the economy, it is tourism and technology. Think about all the tech that's going on at Disney and Universal. Think how we can connect that then with the technology that's throughout the corridor. There, it, there are infinite ways of, of doing that. I, and, I'll, and I'll give a final word and a shout out to the, the, the retired president from USF Steve Corral, who wrote a book called Organized Innovation. And in one of those chapters, he talks about boundary-breaking collaboration and the value of true boundary-breaking collaboration. When I read that book early in my career here, I I was sold. Because of all the technology uh, sectors that we have and the magic that can happen between those clusters, Um, I see it happening today. What about the way we've responded to the pandemic as it's evolved? Like, you know, we're seeing a a, a second surge of COVID now. Um, some of the public health initiatives are pretty simple things, right? They're, they're, they're around vaccinations, around masking and stuff. I'm wondering what your perspective is on the role of technology and kind of helping us get out of this crisis. Like how, how big a part do you think tech and particularly the high tech world has to play in that? Yeah, well, certainly with vaccines, and and I'll talk there specifically, when people, when you realize how fast those vaccines came out, a lot of that was all the pre-work that had been done, not just in Florida, but really kind of across the world, in the technologies of how to develop vaccines. Florida has a great life sciences role. I mean, think of Medical City down in Lake Nona. Think of what goes on at USF. Think of what goes on at UF. Uh, University of Florida hospitals and 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 immunology there, tremendous amount of work that went in to prepare us. Little did we know it was going to hit to be able to produce vaccines quickly. So technology is absolutely there. Now think of distribution and the technology of getting those things to where they need to be is another um, key thing that I think technology can help with. 
and I think we also need to look at what did the pandemic um, show us on what's vulnerable. Uh, think of the food system. Um, think of how critical that global food system kind of came crashing down around us. One of the partnerships we have is with Four Roots, with John Rivers. And I know you interviewed him a few weeks ago, and John's a great guy. And what his foundation is doing with the Four Roots Farm Campus right here in Orlando uh, and showing, and this goes to the education piece, showing our kids and our families what kinds of things can be done with, John will show you, there's technology and dirt. And, and so as we think about what the pandemic, what we can learn from it, I think we have to go beyond vaccines and we can look at other systems that we, we have to make more resilient. Um, and that's one of the big lessons that, that I've learned, taking advantage of the understanding and the learning to then re-vector where we need to focus. I want to come back to the Space Coast because uh, you know, you're a former test pilot. You have a degree in astronautical engineering too, so you know this field better than probably a lot, a lot of folks. I have a lot of I have a lot of friends over there too, and I'm always je- I'm always jealous because I see I have friends who are classmates who are astronauts, and and uh, and I'm jealous and I'm blessed at the same time knowing uh, what they're going to do, what they've done, and what they're going to do in the future. Did you want to be an astronaut at some point? Oh yeah, yeah, of course. I, I think uh, I say of course. Maybe, maybe there are a few, uh, you know, test pilots out there that don't want to be. But honestly, if you corner if you corner them, they're going to say sure. Um, I was I was blessed with a couple of interviews. I didn't make the cut. It's important to have humbling experiences like that uh, going forward. And at the same time, you realize you can watch what the space program is doing. Um, I'll, I'll share with you a quick, one of the things we do, uh, one of the, one of the things that our real folk, a lot of our focus is, is on STEM education. And there are a lot of STEM summer camps over the last two years, a lot of online things. We did uh, a couple of summer camps with the National Center for Simulation and some eighth graders. And, and I got a chance to talk to them for about 30 minutes because in this particular summer camp, they were building drones. And so we talked about testing drones and one of the gals on uh, on the call, one of the eighth graders, she asked me, because we started talking about space exploration. And she asked me, um, hey, Mr. Soul, how do we make sure we don't pollute the next planet that we go to, kind of like we're doing here? And I thought, whoa, I, I did not expect that kind of deep question. And it, and it generated this whole other... Um, sort of line of, of discussion. My point is that the kids that want to be astronauts, uh, the kids that want to do great things in bioscience, the kids that want to learn about and, and study farming and transportation and everything else, it, it honestly, it's, it's all right here in Florida. It's just right here. And they can do anything they want and get exposed and, and have experiences anything they want. I wonder what your thoughts too, just reflecting on the last couple of months, uh, uh, looking at what's happening in the space industry, because, you know, we've had this sort of boom in space tourism, or at least the, the early stages, right? You've had Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, uh, Elon Musk, I think, planning something for later in the year. And Branson made a comment about kind of making space accessible to all. Of course, there's a price tag attached, but thinking about, you know, when you were embarking as a test pilot, probably the, the you know the the road to becoming an astronaut was a bit narrower than it is now yeah um yeah i hope i hope i'm around where 
you know, I hope the price comes down so I can go uh, and and see what that's like and to really view the earth. You know, it it is, and and I have a, a bunch of friends who are still current astronauts who really talk about the life changing experience when you get to see this planet from that view. Um, I was a kid. I was six years old with a little black and white TV watching Neil Armstrong step down, and then you saw another picture in my mind is that is the Earthrise picture from the backside of the moon looking across and seeing the Earth come up. And how precious this this planet is for us, and why that space exploration is so important as well, because it it not only drives technology, it, I think it drives dreams. I think it drives creativity, and that's that's maybe another sort of aha moment here that I had to redefine what technology is in my mind. I used to think, you know, well, technology, it's all the, the nanotech and it's the artificial intelligence. And and then I realized that it, at the end of the day, it's really about creativity uh, and being able to harness that creativity that's right here. It's it's right here in the corridor and you can see it. We've, we've moved a lot of our educational um, stuff earlier and earlier in the pipeline. Uh, Orlando Science Center with with Joanne Newman is great, and I believe that technology and what we do at the corridor can be a part of lifting up everybody. We could focus on a lot of things, but if I can focus for my time here, however long that is, to serving the underserved, that would be great because the creativity in that group is untapped right now in the world of technology. Retired Rear Admiral Paul Soul, uh, former commander of the Navy's Operational Test Evaluation Force. He's the CEO of the Florida High Tech Corridor Council. Paul, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Matthew. Appreciate it. Still to come, a hero of children's television is immortalized in bronze. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. A bronze sculpture of Fred Rogers is on its way to Rollins College. The sculpture, which stands about 7 feet tall and weighs about 3,000 pounds, took two years to complete. Sculptor Paul Day says it came from... Sculptor Paul Day says it came about from a chance encounter with a Rollins trustee, Alan Keane, and his wife Linda, who visited his studio while on vacation in France and asked if he would create the sculpture for the college. Day knew nothing about Fred Rogers before he started researching the piece. And I have to say, it was an epiphany, um, would be the word. Uh, I'd never heard of him, uh, never heard him speak, never seen a picture of him. And all of a sudden, my computer screen was awash with images of Fred and his puppets. And of course, videos of previous episodes of what I came to learn was um, Mr. Rogers' Neighbourhood. I was bowled over by this man um, and by his his incredible uh, wisdom and generosity of spirit and intelligence and educational prowess. 
Day says he's planning to be in Florida when the sculpture is unveiled in October, although the pandemic has made it difficult for him to get a visa to travel. I spoke to him earlier this month as the sculpture was being loaded onto a container and shipped to Florida. He says the project became a personal quest for him after meeting with Fred Rogers' wife Joanne, who passed away earlier this year. When I came to think about how to represent this man, I think my my lack of a priori, my complete ignorance of him previously, was an advantage. You know, there are two sculptures in the States that I'm aware of that have been commissioned of Fred, one in Pittsburgh, one in Latrobe, shown as uh, as just a seated figure in his you know classic cardigan and sneakers. I felt that what was missing in those statues was something that told the story of who he was. Bearing in mind, I've never... I'd never heard of the the man. I felt that the sculpture would be something that's going to outlive the memory of him among people who are alive today, quite possibly. Um, And therefore, it should in some way um, explain itself, um, show him doing what he did best and why he became so loved um, and, and famous. It also occurred to me that Fred being an extremely uh, modest and humble person, always tried to deflect the attention attention away from himself towards the children and towards the work he did. He he would never have um, been comfortable in any way with sort of being treated uh, somehow as a VIP or celebrity. And having looked at all the documentary footage of him, it's clear that um, whenever he was in the company of children, he lost almost all interest in the grown-ups around him and went straight to them and got on their level and communicated with them and communed with them in a way which is exceptional. So I persuaded or I encouraged the the college um, to consider the idea of not a statue of Mr. Rogers, but a scene um, showing Mr. Rogers, um, you know, uh, doing his thing. So he's surrounded by... Like he's he's got a kind of a group of children around him. He's sort of holding court with them or, or speaking to them on, on their level, as you say. Yes, he's 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 sort of squatting down, sitting on a little child's stool. There are um, there are seven children around him um, in various attitudes of you know um, uh, various positions and various various moods, and he is um, he's using Daniel the puppet, the tri- the striped tiger to tell a story to them and to engage with them. And uh, one, of the, one of the most moving scenes in that documentary you mentioned earlier, and it's a documentary that everyone has to see, I think, it's so beautiful, um, was when a little boy uh, was standing in front of Mr. Rogers with Daniel on the end of his arm. And the little boy was describing how recently his pet dog had died. And Fred, through Daniel, was was sort of sharing the loss of this pet um, with the little boy and having the most extraordinary and intimate and um, touching conversation. And I just, um, I just felt that that, uh, that picture really summed up um, the uniqueness and the brilliance of, of Fred Rogers. And the documentary, of course, uh, came out in 2018, and that's uh, Won't You Be My Neighbour. This sounds like a, a complicated sculpture a complicated scene Paul so is it among the more challenging pieces that you've worked on from a technical standpoint I would say probably yes 
in that um, a lot, I've done a lot of big work in the past and um, uh, I, have, I have four fairly large monuments in London, for example, with lots of figures, hundreds of figures. Um, but in this case, the figures are um, what we would call in the round. Uh, they're full sculptures. I tend to work a lot in relief. Um, that means sculpting pictures against a backdrop where you only really have to deal with the front surface. Um, in this case, it's been a while since I've done a group of life-size. Well, in fact, these are these are more like twice life-size. These figures, uh, so they're they're really quite big. Um, but it's been it's been a long time since I've actually um, tackled figures in the in that complexity of composition. Um, and also, it's really the first time that I've sculpted children on that scale in the round as the primary subject. And I'm sure you're aware, but you know, children in art come with 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 um, a health warning. So many so many renderings of children in art turn towards um, sent over sentimentality, or towards kitsch, or the children look like shrunken teenagers. But also, I've always found when looking at children that their faces can change. Um, so remarkably from looking like a child to looking like an old person. You know, children's expressions are unguarded. Um, they, uh, they're not necessarily aware of uh, the, the politics of their relationships. They are frank, open pages, as it were. Um, and therefore, when I see children in art portrayed as a sort of um, a, a sweet, sentimental beings, that's the... That's a superficial adult portrayal of childhood, in my opinion. And one of the great things about Fred was that when he spoke to a child, he spoke to that child as, as a human being, not as a child, but as somebody with whom he could have a deep and meaningful conversation, albeit on their level. But, but it, wasn't, it wasn't in any way an approach that talked down to children. And I've always connected with that myself. I, I feel I've always had a fairly open mind and an open heart towards young children. And I, I find it very easy to, um, to talk to them. So I, I brought children into the studio, children of friends, uh, children from the local school, just in very, very small numbers, and spent time with them. One mum in particular uh, brought uh, three children into pose for me. And not that I was looking to copy their likeness, but I wanted to get a feel both for their, their physicality, their, you know, the length and shape of their limbs and hands and so on, but also obviously uh, what sort of facial expressions and, and attitudes um, might be appropriate. It strikes me too that, I mean, you're, you're evoking a scene from a television show, so you're, you're kind of freezing a moment in time, but you're then trying to turn that around and make it real. So you're you're trying to do two things at once. There's kind of an alchemy to it, right? You're trying to evoke a sense of movement and motion and mimic an art form that is, by its very nature, you know, it's kind of fleeting television. It's something you kind of experience in the moment. So you're you're trying to pull off the impossible in some ways. Well, I think sculpture, in a sense, is always trying to... Figurative sculpture is always trying to strive to that. You're absolutely right. Um if the fixed image doesn't imp have implied movement, latent life to it, physical life, you know, moving life, 
um, then then that object frozen in time can look soulless and lifeless. Um, now, obviously, you know, a sculpture is something that you just one discovers um, in physical space. Therefore, you have to move around it. So there's always a sort of an element of time passing when you look at a sculpture. It is, in a sense, not just a fixed image, but there is also um, the element of time as you turn around it or it turns around you. So they're not so dissimilar in some respects, but obviously this image will stay the same for forever while it's while it's in existence and and composition i.e finding a balance of form and line positioning the figures in such a way that the eye is naturally drawn across it in sort of curves and zigzags helps to i think uh, imbibe it with a sense of movement and life but i was also very very keen that, for example, to avoid what, what one could imagine being um, a 19th century image of children around the feet of Jesus, for example, or, or cherubs, uh, you know, this, this is not a, um, a religious icon. These, this is a man who loves these children and the children love him, but they are interacting. They're having a, a conversation between equals in a way. And, and I felt that the children should be expressing some of the emotion, curiosity, um, wonder, um, playfulness that I saw brilliantly portrayed in that documentary um, and in other archives that I've consulted of Fred. You know, I wanted the children and Fred to be having a personal conversation and for the children to express um, not, not a sort of hagiographic glorifying, this is Mr. Fred Rogers, but, you know, we are communing with we, we, we're talking and we're, we're listening to his story we're, we're Daniel is our friend you know um, Fred's our, Mr Rogers is our friend there's a there's a I, I want it to be somehow as truthful as possible to the archives that I witnessed and to the the spirit of of what I felt was the man's relationship with his audience it's interesting you bring up the idea of not wanting it to evoke religious imagery or something because that's something that his widow, the late Joanne Rogers, brought up as well. She wanted to make it clear that this was not a saint, this was a, a, a real human being. And it sounds like that's kind of what you're striving for a little bit there as well. Well, I think, I think, um, I mean, Joanne and I actually spoke about this. Um, I didn't get out, I didn't, I didn't manage to get from her exactly what made Fred anything other than a saint. In, the, in, in my Protestant-minded understanding of sainthood, Fred is most definitely a saint, but as is Joanne, as are those who profess that faith. You know, so the sort of the idea of saint that doesn't depend. It's it's not the Catholic um, um, idea that somebody has to have performed miracles and so on. Um, but in fact, the, the fact is, I think our concept of what a miracle is sometimes goes astray because in a sense, Fred's life and work was pretty miraculous. Um, the, the number of lives he touched and changed for the better there, there is a side to his work, his life's work, which is extraordinary and and worthy of 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 praise, you know, and uh, and of of a, a form of adoration. Um, but the fact is, as you say, um, and I agree entirely with with Joanne, you know, flesh and blood, we're all fa failed, you know, we're all failed human beings, as it were, and um, and it's it's not about you know, it's not about the achievement; it's about how we commune with others, how we befriend others, how we are good neighbours. I mean, 
Fred's um, values of neighbourliness, I think, would be um, beneficial um, to it to, to infuse into the current public dialogue and into the world of social media. And in fact, I think if Fred were alive, he'd be now and performing, you know, and 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 writing his programs and so on. He might well be teaching us all how to be how to be neighbourly and good neighbours on social media, for example. You know, what what shift in our behaviour needs to happen so that we no longer feel we can take liberties in, in anonymity to to criticize and 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 um and insult people um uh, over the internet i think there is an art to be learned of neighborliness um in our current sort of you know modes of communication yeah i think you're right i think that fred rogers name has been invoked many times over the last 2 years uh talking about politics and how to talk about the pandemic and i think there's a sense of kind of yearning for if only we had somebody like fred rogers to to lean on in these times but people are sort of picking up those lessons and and trying to use them especially in their conversations with kids and about how to kind of navigate some of these challenging issues you'd plan to be here in the united states but because of the latest surge in the pandemic you've been held up in france but i, I imagine you'll be here or you're planning to be here at some point to unveil the sculpture right it will be it will be i will be deeply distressed not to be at the unveiling and i hope that the powers that be are able to see um this uh, memorial as in the national interest and allow me an exception uh, to go and both um work at the college um in a sort of teaching capacity as a, a for a for a short period but also to be able to communicate and um and present the sculpture um, to all those people who have been generous enough to make donations to pay for it, and all the faculty staff and the peripheral staff at Rollins who have worked incredibly hard um, to turn this event into something major for them. So, yeah, I, I, I really, really would. I mean, if I had to row the Atlantic, I would row the Atlantic, but I've got to be there. And that was British sculptor Paul Day, creator of a seven-foot-tall sculpture of Mr. Rogers that is being installed at Rollins College in October. Mr. Rogers was a graduate of Rollins. Support for Intersection comes from our listeners and from Advent Health, editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. 